Good morning. It's good to see all of you. My sister Nadine is 22 months younger than I am. She was born with our family's gorgeous chestnut red hair. Definitely red. My own red hair has always been more strawberry and to some not red at all. I was talkative and not athletic. She was studious and could run like the wind. We were both on the high school forensic teams, but she was also on the debate team. We both excelled. We were on a Bible quiz team together. There was one quiz master who I thought was particularly cute, and now he's my brother-in-law. That's a story for another day. We both learned to knit from college friends. I knit as a hobby now all of the time. She has probably not picked up her knitting needles in years. She got married before I did, to my great-grandma's dismay, because she was younger. But I was her maid of honor, and she was my matron of honor. We both worked in ministry with branches of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I at commuter colleges in South Suburban Chicagoland, she in Lviv, Ukraine. We will both order pink grapefruit juice over orange juice any day, sharing that preference with our mom and three other siblings. We often pray for each other's, sibling, for each other's children. We fiercely love each other. We also have deeply hurt each other. We have collaborated with one another and competed with one another. Once, once, when in college, we were playing Monopoly with my boyfriend, now husband Andrew, and David, the cute and very competitive quiz master, who is now my brother-in-law. I was in dire straits. I had spent too much time in jail, had no hotels or houses, and perhaps landed on Park Place one too many times. I knew I had to count my losses. I gave Nadine all my money and all my property so she would have a fighting chance against David. Even in defeat, I couldn't leave her helpless. Needless to say, David was not very happy. I don't remember who won that game, but I felt I saved her in a way. There was also the time that when we were children, when she colored all my Barbies with permanent markers. Or that time when she and her friend chased me around the yard with a stick and dog poop on the end. As newlyweds, she and David lived in Evanston, while Andrew and I lived on the north side of Chicago. Nadine and I got together every week for lunch. As young couples in a vibrant city, we explored jazz cup jazz clubs, cooked together, watched movies. She and David weren't sure they were, could have kids and signed up for the mission field. But against all odds, we were pregnant together. Our oldest children are four months apart. Now, when we had lunch on Devon Street, she would throw my niece's car seat over the crook of her shoulder and book down the street 
while I struggled doing the same with two car seats and two babies. When she lived in Ukraine for seven years, we would send pages and pages of emails to one another, sometimes daily, with obviously dial-up delay. There have been times of silence and times of great joy, but we have always come back to our sisterhood. We have always, in joy and trouble, journeyed together. When Scott asked me to preach on Rachel, I immediately thought of her story as only being half of the story. We often read the story of Rachel and Leah through a Hollywood lens. We see a tragic, heroic love story, a man enduring seven years and another seven years to be with the woman he loves. Or we see some kind of dark rom-com about a young man, Jake the Snake, kind of shifty, who works hard to get the girl. Our tendency, like Jacob, is to favor the barren, beautiful Rachel. What we neglect by reading the story from Jacob's point of view and through our own American individualistic Hollywood lens is the bond that these sisters, Rachel and Leah, must have shared. We stop asking questions about Leah and Rachel and their world and the family relationships and just assume they were one-dimensional characters. We forget that they journeyed together for their whole lives. But Jewish traditions have not forgotten these women. In Ruth 4.11, the elders of the community say to Boaz, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming to your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. The stories of scripture are large and rich enough for us to return to again and again, turning them this way, seeing new truths. Today, I ask that you try to let go of our romantic, modern lens with Jacob at the center. I would like you to journey with me to Padam Aram, with all its strange, to us, customs of marriage and property. What would we see if we put these sisters, their families, and their households at the center of the story? I would like you to see two shepherdesses, sisters who together built up the house of Israel, women who journeyed and struggled together, learning to follow a strange God, a God who would bless them in ways they could never expect. We first see Rachel coming towards the community well in the middle of the day. Jake the snake has been arguing with some apparently slowpoke slow shepherds who are refusing to water their sheep until all of their sheep are at the well. Here's how the text tells it. While he was talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. She was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well 
and watered her uncle's sheep. Jacob is so excited to see her, her beauty, and her wealth that he runs over to the well and pushes away the stone covering it, watering her sheep. His homecoming is filled with emotion. Jake the snake, you remember, cheated his twin brother out of the birthright and blessing with his mother's advice and has been on the run for many days. Now finding himself with his mother's people meant relief and comfort and maybe a fresh start. And lo and behold, not only was this marriageable cousin good-looking, she was rich. Laban, the Armenian, was wealthy, long established in his land. He measured his wealth not in gold, but in land, livestock, and labor. Sheep and goats, camels and donkeys, male and female servants, and of course, his own children, who all worked for him too. If Jacob had been a schemer and a trickster, Jake the snake, then his uncle Laban is big boss, the kingpin of Padam Aram. And he's too all too happy to take advantage of this kid from Cana, his nephew far from home. Welcomed as family, Jacob stays with Laban for a whole month as a guest, pitching in with the work of tending Laban's flocks. Then Laban makes an offer. Why don't you work for me for free? Why work for me for free? Why don't we make an agreement? And because Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, it must have been pretty obvious, Jacob binds himself to seven years of work for Laban, Laban if he will give her to him. It might seem romantic to us, but I think Laban knew exactly what he was doing. After seven years, the wedding day finally arrived. Laban throws a large party, and then, under the cover of darkness, he has Leah, under the cover of darkness, has Leah head into Jacob's tent instead of Rachel. When Jacob objects the next morning, Laban makes excuses for altering the deal and offers to give him Rachel, too, for a price. So by the end of the week, Jacob has not one wife that he can take back home, but two wives and a contract for seven more years of labor for the big boss, Uncle Laban. No one is free to leave Padam Aram. But where are the sisters in all of this? I'm not the only one to suspect that Rachel and Leah were not passive bystanders in this wedding night trickery. There could be no winning for either of them unless they work together. Could delicate-eyed Leah resist her father or say no to a good husband? Could Rachel humiliate her sister and keep Jacob for herself? How could the deception have worked unless they both, and Leah's servant, Zilpah, too, went along with Laban's plan? Traditional Jewish commentary suggests that Jacob and Rachel, after seven years, had a coded love language, and that Rachel, keeping quiet the whole plan, taught it to Leah on the wedding night, 
So Jacob believed he was with Rachel. So both Leah and Rachel are married to Jacob and have a household and servants of their own. But neither woman is content. Leah knows she is less loved. Rachel seems barren. Leah names her children with names that mean, see a son, or now my husband will love me. Rachel is so frustrated with her inability to have children that she blames Jacob. And he, he says, am I in the place of God? Fine, she says. If it can't be me, take my serv- servant Billa as a wife so I can build a family through her. Leah, in turn, gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife on behalf. as a wife on her behalf as well. Where they had once collaborated for their husband, now each sister completely, now each sister competed jealously against against the other over decades of aching, longing, and bargaining to establish families of their own. And after 20 years of struggle, Leah has six sons, plus two from her servant Zilpah. Rachel has two, has two sons from her servant Bilhah, plus her own son, Joseph. Jacob, despite Laban's schemes to claim Jacob's blessing for himself, has acquired great wealth. There's still a long way from happily ever after. They still must break free of Laban's grip, reckon with Jacob's brother Esau, and make a place for themselves in Canaan. But God has blessed them so far, and together they are ready to return to Jacob's father's house. Rachel and Leah were companions on this journey together. Yes, it was competitive. Yes, It was heartbreaking, but it was also collaborative. It was courageous. Together, they started to recognize where this God was working, blessing, and establishing their household against all odds. Alone, they would have wrapped, they would have stayed wrapped in their individual pain, but by their endurance, they gained a place of honor. Their descendants called them nation builders. Back in Cana, Jacob's homeland, Rachel gave birth to one more son. A difficult road, a difficult labor on the road near Bethlehem and dying. She named him Ben-Ami, son of my sorrow. But Jacob named him Benjamin, which can mean either son of my right hand, meaning south, that is Cana, since he was the only one born there, or son of my days, because he was a blessing in Jacob's old age. Leah is born with her her foremothers, Rebekah and Sarah, but Rachel is buried along the road to Ephrath, near Bethlehem, where Jacob set up a pillar to mark her tomb. Much later, when the tribes of Israel were taken into captivity in Babylon, they passed along this road. 
In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, Rachel is seen as the one weeping for her children, who begs the Lord of heaven to have mercy and patience for her descendants and return them to their homeland. The Lord responds, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. This is not one of those simple heroes and villains tales, but a tale of endurance and struggle and hope. Each character has wrestled with God and others. They have loved hard and imperfectly. Who are our sisters today? Our close fellow travelers, collaborators, and competitors, fellow heirs of the covenant. Can we see God at work with them, along with us, even in difficulty and strife? I look at these mothers and ask about them and what is, hold, what is worth holding on to. I see them I see in them a persistence to fight for their space in the world, a doggedness to claim what is, what is theirs, to wrestle with God. I see a desire to be loved just as they are. I see lives enriched, if complicated, by the companionship of tra fellow travelers. In seasons of collaboration or competition, we can learn to recognize the enduring grace and love and companionship of God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a good place to land.